And before we get there, I just would like to read a passage from Isaiah 56, from verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So if you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are feeling dry and cut off, let us look in the Word today and see that this is not the case. The Lord has for you an everlasting name. So good morning to you. I greet you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who lives forever to intercede for us. Uh, I'd like, if you could, uh, to open with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And we're reading from chapter, th- uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 31 onwards. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Adam, and have never been enslaved to anyone, despite Egypt. How is it then that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus turned it straight round on these self-righteous people. We are children of Abraham. We've been enslaved to no one. You were in slavery for hundreds of years. <laughs> and he said, and, but he doesn't even say that. He says, forget about that. You were slaves to sin because you lived in it. But if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here together uh, today safely. We We are here to receive the ministry of your word by your spirit. Would you open us to your teaching, Father, that we may stand under the free-flowing torrents of your grace that, that pour out from all the things that you have spoken to us in your word. May we be encouraged by your truth, Jesus, and by the seal of your Holy Spirit as we think on glorious and heavenly things. Amen. All right, so as... I'll mention we're beginning a series on discipleship, which I'm extremely excited about. Um, it's, it's not necessarily every week, but there's going to be a theme of discipleship running through the second half of the year. So today we're just going to have a look at what it means to be a disciple, um, and then in future we'll break that down. This is just an overview, a little bit of a survey with a, a few marks of, of what the Bible teaches about being a disciple. Now, I've called this sermon, Discipleship, The Cost of Life is Death. Now, there's a lot of valuable material out there about being a disciple. But as Christians, we should care, first and foremost, about what God says. So, today, as always, 
unlike the spirit of this age, we will consult God's word and see what he teaches us about being a disciple. We won't engage in speculation and opinion and guesswork. We will not get rid of the Old Testament and say, out with the old, it's only the new. We will look at the whole counsel of God. We are going to believe, in contrast with the spirit of, the, of this age, what uh, Paul says to us um, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. Okay? The word there, the Greek word for breathed out, is theopneustos. Okay? So it's literally having the sense, the, the warmth of the breath that has come from God. It's the pneuma, the spirit of God. That has been breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for, rebu- for a reproof, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to be being made complete, equipped for every good work. And it's the spirit of God, according to the word of God, that does that work in us. And there's, of course, many biblical descriptions of what it means to be a disciple, but I I think we're just going to, as a survey, look through about six key texts. And um, these six marks that we're going to consider of a disciple are, firstly, a disciple abides in God's word. That's the title text of a sermon today. Second, so first, a disciple abides in God's word. Second, a disciple is wholeheartedly for Christ. A disciple is wholeheartedly for Christ. Third, A disciple is a worshiper. A disciple is a worshiper. Fourthly, a disciple loves his brother. A disciple loves his brother. Fifth, a disciple bears fruit. A disciple bears fruit. And finally, a disciple is a witness. A disciple is a witness. Okay, so those are our six But before we get to that, um, just in principle, a disciple is somebody who follows the teachings of another. It uh, follows in the footsteps, in the ways of the one who is the teacher. Applied to Jesus, a disciple is somebody who is walking with, following, listening to, applying the teaching of Jesus Christ. And uh, the amazing thing about this is, Because of God's awakening grace in our soul, our heart, our affections, our actions are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. The result of this is that we become Christ-like little ones. This is the guaranteed work of the Spirit in in our lives, and we can see these promises to us in Scripture. But we need to make a distinction at this point that there is a difference between a true and a false disciple. Because, believe me, there are false disciples, and we know the most infamous, infamous one uh, is Judas. Because Jesus said to his disciples, you are my disciples, but behold, one of you is a devil. There are pseudo-disciples, those following around, naming the name of Christ, memorizing the things he said, but they are dead on the inside. They are imposters. So to be a True disciple has certain marks, and that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus even said to them in John chapter 6, Did I not choose you, yet one of you is a devil? And he was speaking, of course, 
of Simon Iscariot. So attending church, having people refer to you as a disciple, being part of a discipleship program, reading a Bible every day, does not make you a disciple. What we're talking about today is what makes one a disciple. See, we need to love God and love people from the heart. We need to obey God's commandments out of joy. Discipleship is not a simple program where you sign up and you join and you begin a series of activities and then they get you to stop swearing and they get you to stop doing this and stop doing that uh, because otherwise we end up like a Pharisee. They were whitewashed tombs, pristine on the outside, dead, rotting, decaying, cursed on the inside. See, discipleship is primarily, remember this, discipleship is primarily a spiritual reality. Something has to change in order for you to be a true disciple. That's what uh, Jesus also said in in, uh, John chapter 6. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. There requires not a recalibration of activities, a recalibration of behaviors. It requires a rebirth, a whole new man to be made. And that is the miracle of regeneration. We can, we can look and see that true discipleship flows from this changed heart. We can go to Proverbs chapter, chapter 4, Proverbs 4, 4 to 5. Let your heart hold fast to my words. Right? Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. From the heart. Discipleship is a matter of the heart. That's why obedience to, true obedience to God, true service to Christ is a matter of obedience from the heart. One can decorate the externals but still be cursed. Now, it's true that Christianity itself is a matter of the heart. And the Bible uses the term disciple essentially interchangeably. Uh, You can see it, there's about 15 references and acts to people as disciples when when they're talking about the general church. So all disciples are Christians, and all Christians are disciples. It is impossible to follow Christ and his teachings and not to be a Christian, and it's impossible to call yourself a Christian without actually, and to be one, without following Jesus Christ. So basically, all Christians are disciples. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. So we're talking about a big topic here, the whole of the Christian faith. So with this in mind, let's go and have a look at some of these marks. So the first one with today's texts, a disciple abides in God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, this is extremely, extremely strong language. Jesus is tying knowing his word to his voice and all the way through to assurance of eternal life. He says something similar in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, true believers recognize Christ's voice. Those who refuse to submit to, recognize, and love Scripture are those in whom the Spirit is not residence. Because the Spirit testifies to the truth of God's Word in our hearts. And that gives us great assurance because it says the Spirit works in us to uh, convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? And we are convicted and assured that Jesus Christ has had that judgment heaped upon him. So that all we know is the love and discipline of our Father in heaven. And we know that we cannot be snatched. So in our weakest moments, in our failings, we don't need to lose assurance because we have the Spirit bearing witness to us that since God is the one who saved you, since God is the one who is sanctifying you, He is the one who will raise you up on the last day. That's the chain of promises that we receive through the witness of the Spirit to us. And Paul says in chapter 3 of his letter to the Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Alan and I were talking about this when we met on, on Wednesday morning. And Romans 8 says that we are to walk according to the Spirit, which is life and peace. Okay, so it's impossible to be a word guy if you're not a spirit guy. It's impossible to be a spirit guy if you're not a word guy. Because the breath of God, the word of God, is the Spirit, the testimony to His truth. So it is impossible to really know the Word but be without the Spirit. And it is impossible to know the Spirit without the Word. There are those who, if they do have one without the other, they have neither. You have those claiming that they have the Spirit and they're basically functional witch doctors. It's a different Spirit. And then you have the, if they don't have the word, the truth. And then you have those who have the word, um, they've memorized it, like the Pharisees, but they are dead inside. There is no life, there is no vitality, there is no hope, there's no promises, there's no assurance, there's no life for them. For us as believers, we have the word and the spirit. So, what does it mean to have the word and to have the spirit? It means to hide God's word in your heart, to set your mind on things above, the heavenly things. It even says that in Romans 8. To set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. In contrast to setting the mind on the flesh, which is death. Right? But we have life and peace in the spirit. So, if you wish to know the joy and, the, and this, this assurance and this peace, you need to stand under where God's grace is showered. And where has he promised to shower out his grace? In his word, through its preaching, through your meditation on it, uh, reading it, memorizing it, applying it, working out. He's pouring out his grace in prayer. He pours out his grace in the corporate gathering together for worship. He pours out his grace in fellowship between believers. He pours out his grace when you're driving along and worshiping him in your car. Wherever his name is named, wherever his word is spoken, wherever his spirit dwells, wherever cries and praise and prayers are lifted up to him, he pours out, he showers out his blessings and his abundant grace. 
And as I said, it's not just enough that we can recite God's word. God expects us to obey it. That's what it means to really know God's law, is to do it also. The Pharisees didn't know it. They simply had it memorized. Those who truly love God love his commandments. See the prayers of David in the Psalms. Let me behold wondrous things in your law. Open my eyes so I can see the beauty of your law. Now, we're not talking about the law as a system for obtaining righteousness. We're talking about the laws that God has given, which are expressions of his goodness and his perfection, his holiness, his character, his mercy, his justice, and his grace. These laws, the things that is in his word, these things are wonderful. They are heavenly. They are above. They are not the things of this world. And they are the things which we are to love and to do. Jesus said this extremely clearly in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Exactly, obey. But he's also said, you're only really obeying if it's coming from the heart. So that's why Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 says, I don't know why this is in King James, but anyway. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling savor, aroma. You see, if you hide God's word in your heart, that's what we see in Psalm 91, we will not sin against him. That's, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure by, by hiding God's word in his heart? God's law does two things. His word does two things. Firstly, it functions to constrain evil. I don't know about you, but when I'm spending lots of time in God's word, I experience what the word promises, which is the washing of the word. You experience sanctification. You, you are, you, evil desires are suppressed and put away from you. The flesh is uh, silenced. It's depressed and put away. That's what Paul says. Put off the old man and put on the new man. But it does something else too. It brings with it vivification to life. It doesn't just mortify. It doesn't just kill sin. It also brings out life into your heart. It does both those things. It pushes out the evil and it puts in rivers of living water so that they flow out of you by the ministry of the Spirit. See, it will constrain evil within you and it will multiply your joy. So in Romans 7, we see this weird struggle going on. Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's crying out and he's saying, I am regenerate in my heart. My desires in my heart are for God's law. But yet I see this old man at work. And there are some who say, oh no, this is Paul describing himself before he was regenerate. Impossible. It's impossible to love God's law and to delight in it in your inner being as an unregenerate person. There is nothing in your heart except wickedness, deceitfulness, and malice before Christ. And Paul is saying, but when I sin, it's no longer I. It's this death tent 
that will be put away at the return of Christ. That's why believers long for his return. That I may put off this flesh and that I may put on the robe of Christ in my new being. That's our great hope as believers. But, but if there is no war, if there is no war, you are not a believer. You need salvation. If there's no war going on, if, if you don't hate what your members are doing, if you love what your members are doing, you are in sin, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and you need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. But if you delight in God's law and in your innermost being, and yet you seem captive to this body of death, be assured you are being renewed by the Spirit of God. So lean into his words, stand under the showers of his grace, and be sanctified. See, I find that the further I get in, in being a disciple, the further I get in knowing God, knowing his law, loving, loving him, as sin reduces in your life, you would say, oh, it gets better as you get older. But it doesn't matter that the quantity of sin goes down as you grow in sanctification. It gets way worse because you understand more and more how much worse each sin is, how much of an affront all sin is to God. It hurts more. The war increases. It requires so much more effort. It's so, more, so much more tiring because the, you recognize how depraved each departure from God's righteous law is. But yet, we are comforted by the Spirit who is at work in us. That's why we can take heart. That's why we can lean into the battle because the battle has its victory in Christ's sacrifice. And it will be brought to fulfillment. The end of that battle will come for us against our members at Christ's return. Then not only will we, we I've said this to you many times, we will not only be freed from the power of, of sin in our lives, but it, and its actual presence will be gone. There will be no sin. There will be no crying. There will be no tears, no pain, no suffering. It will all be gone. And when we see him, we will be like him. We will know the true joy of true holiness. Because we will be holy like God is holy. Amazing. When we see him, we will be like him. Now, there are clearly people who thought that the power going out was an excuse not to pitch up for fellowship with God's people. Yes, you know, these are, these are the critical things. But you know what, it doesn't matter. If one of you pitched up today, God would meet here with you. Because God has promised to meet with his people. God is looking for worshipers. If you arrive to worship, God's here. He doesn't arrive, he was already here. Um, we need to sense as disciples of how much God loves us. And that's why I was saying earlier in the prayer meeting, is there's almost a foolishness to preaching because you're trying to communicate the greatness of God's love. But... Um, what, what man can communicate that? How can one put into words how much God loves us? And so I pray that you get a sense of God's love for you today. Um, that you are washed over, in a sense, uh, with his delight in you. That he chose you before the foundation of the world to graft you into his family. We've already sinned against, every one of us, before we got here this morning, we had sinned against God in our hearts. <laughs> yeah. But, but yet, 
because of God's tender-heartedness, because of his promises to you, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have fellowship, unbroken fellowship with him. We have access to God that was only possible for his son until his son died for us. We have that access today. Second mark of a disciple. A disciple is wholeheartedly for Christ. If we go and read the Gospels, well, we see that the requirements to, to follow Christ are intense. We must love Christ more than life. We must love Christ more than family. We must love Christ more than work. We must love Christ more than money. We must love Christ more than ourselves. Just, just exactly. Just a, just a few examples. Luke 14.33. So likewise, we're going back to King James, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he hath, he cannot be, okay, whoever doesn't leave behind all he has cannot be my disciple. And Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And uh, Luke nine fifty seven, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So when the when the call of Jesus Christ comes to you in your life and he says, Follow me, you don't go, I'll be right back. I've just left the kettle on. It's it's get out. Get out and follow Jesus. And 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 Okay, we are not all just uh, running out, literally running out of our homes, uh, leaving the two-year-old by themselves at home and disappearing off. We are leaving behind the place that those things hold in our hearts if they're above Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they're an idol. If there is anything in us that holds a higher importance and love, place in our hearts, it's an idol. Jesus is jealous for the number one spot. Why? Because he is the king, he's the creator, he's the ruler of the universe. He's the perfect one, the one worthy of worship. Therefore, we should not worship anything in his place. Jesus calls us to reflect on our motives. True disciples reflect on their motives, why they are following Jesus Christ. False disciples have no idea. Or it's for the money, or it's for the the veneer of, of peace and public approval. But true disciples know why they are after Christ, because they are bankrupt of righteousness. And Jesus is the one in whom all righteousness dwells. And disciples, true disciples, will pay this cost, this extreme cost, over and over and over again, because they have found the pearl of great price. They have found this treasure buried in a field. This treasure is worth above all else. So uh, Jesus calls us to a double action, to leave and to follow. Leave behind what we loved more than him and to follow him who has become our new first love. Third, a disciple is a worshiper. So to follow Jesus ultimately means to worship him exclusively. To only worship Jesus. We can see this in uh, John chapter 4, 
verse 23. The woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worship from the heart, true knowledge of Jesus Christ. False disciples go to ceremonies. True disciples love God from their innermost being. They worship him in spirit and in truth. So for us as as creatures of God, reflecting back to him the glory that he is due has got to be the greatest privilege. I, I still don't understand why God allows us to ascribe to him the glory and praise and honor and worth that he's due. I am a creature who, apart from Christ, is righteous, bankrupt of righteousness. Isaiah, when he saw the vision of God, he said, behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you know how it says that a man is not defiled by what puts into him, but what comes out of him. So what's Isaiah saying? My, My lips are defiled. What's coming out of me is defiled. That's the first thing he thought when he saw God. You know those people who claim to have seen God in, in, in visions, and they're all like, oh, and there was candy and blah, 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 blah. The first thing he thought is, I am unrighteous, and he is righteous. The first thing they beheld was God's glory, and that the first thought that occurred to them is, I can't be in his presence. But we have access because we have an anchor behind the veil, Jesus Christ who has torn it, who by his blood shed for us, means we can boldly approach the throne. Because when Christ looks upon us, he no longer sees the man of unclean lips. He sees the lips of the Prince of Peace, his son, who died for us. That's why we can worship with confidence. Because God loves us for Jesus Christ's sake. Now, there are many who love the idea of following Jesus if he's the, the moral teacher, the nice guy. If he's the judge not lest you be judged guy, but we can't read the verses either side of that. As long as he's the motivational speaker, as long as he's, he's the one who pep talks you up and then sends you on your way. But that Jesus doesn't exist. He's a man-made figment, an idol, a far cry from what the Spirit has told us through the penmanship of the apostles. See, the real Jesus requires it all, that we worship in spirit and in truth, all of us. He's not a 10% of your life guy. He's not a one-seventh of your week guy. He's the God of the universe 
the one who is tabernacled among us. And the only way to worship God rightly is according to Scripture. And he said that we are to worship from, from our innermost being, but we are also to gather together to worship. Let us not forsake the assembly. Because the corporate union of Christ is a testimony to the, the bride of Christ. You on your own are not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. We are grafted in. We are in union with Christ individually and corporately. But we are not going to have an individual marriage ceremony. We are corporate partakers in the marriage supper. And so we must not forsake gathering together to be with God's people. God is glorified by the gathering of the people together. We are heirs of covenant promise through the corporate blessing that God has promised upon uh, Abraham, Israel, Jesus Christ into the church and through to the, uh, the remnant that remains with him for eternity. Fourthly, these ones are a little shorter. A disciple loves his brother. Jesus said in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And John shows another amazing uh, picture in his gospel about the Jesus that we are to worship. And this is Jesus kneeling to wash the feet of the disciples. It's in John chapter 13. I know it doesn't sound right. The thought that the, the one who molded the universe is on his knees washing the feet of one of his creatures. It sounds bizarre to us. But this is the nature of our Savior. He came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is a servant. He said, I, I came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the rescue for sinners. Mark chapter 10. It didn't write, sound right to Peter because he said, Lord, why are you doing that? I, I must wash your feet. And Jesus says, no, no. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Wow. He's saying, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. So I have given you an example, and you should do just as I have done. In one sense, servantage characterizes all of Christ's disciples. We should all be servant-hearted, because we are being made like the one who is our Savior, the, the great servant, Jesus Christ. It's a family thing. Let us do good to everyone, Paul said, especially to those who have the household of faith. Your first priority in servanthood is to serve the body of Christ, and then it is to go out and to, to bring the message of the gospel. But your first priority, especially to those who are of the household of faith, because how is it, how is it that we can say we love our Lord and we love the people out there, but we do not love our brothers and sisters with whom we fellowship. So to be a disciple of Jesus means to serve like him. By looking at our brothers and sisters, seeing who is low and lifting them up. They may be low financially. They may be low in, in, in courage. They may be low in strength. You need to look around, and each of us needs to see how we can serve those who God has 
put around us. It's the opposite of what the world does. We flip the, the kingdom flips the social order on its head. It doesn't give first prize uh, to, to the rich and famous in sitting on leather seats at the front. Um, we, we serve the lowly because those are the ones whom God loves. God did not come to, he said he, he didn't come to save the, the, the well, the healthy. He came to save the sick. Those who think that they're righteous are well in their own eyes, and they're not the ones for whom Jesus came. He was very clear about that. He said, I came for the sick. Those who recognize I'm in need of a savior. So let us lift up the sick, the brokenhearted around us. Second to last, a disciple bears fruit. John fifteen eight. by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is clear. No fruit, imposter. Now people are one end of the spectrum, either end of the spectrum on this, and, and both, both are dangerous. So some people will say, oh, you need to be gracious. You know, there's no evidence of any fruit whatsoever, but, you know, we just have to, you know, help people along. Or the under, other end of the spectrum is you look only for the externals, and so you say, well, this is, cl- this is, this is clear. This person needs no more growth, nothing. Both of those are, are dangerous. What we're looking for is true fruit that proves that people are disciples. Because if somebody is not bearing fruit and you say, no, they're, they're okay, they can carry on attending here and we won't say anything about it, you are not loving them because they need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And if they do, then they will bear fruit. And it's not so much a how much fruit is this person bearing because this person may be a new believer, they may be an old believer who's not mature in their faith because they haven't been, um, they haven't been taught and, and discipled themselves. The question is, is there fruit, like actual fruit? If there is, this is a person in whom it appears the Spirit of God is working. And they are to be attended to and, and nourished. It's an interesting f- phrase. I mean, he, Jesus was often speaking to farmers. That's why he used analogies like fruit. Because a fruit is, is a proof of a living tree. A dead tree doesn't bear fruit. Um, but, so if there's fruit on the branch, you can't say, no one has ever said, oh, it's full of fruit, it must be dead. Okay, but some people have seen an empty tree and said it must be dead. Now, it may be about to bear fruit, but it's a reasonable assumption to say it's empty, it's dead. It's not reasonable to say it's full of fruit, therefore it's, it's, it's dead. So, uh, the good fruit is that which is produced by the Holy Spirit. So, we, can, we know these fruits in Galatians 5. It gives us an idea. Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are obviously not the only fruits of the Spirit, but they describe the nature of fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the more the Holy Spirit reigns in our lives, the more this fruit will be evident in it. And Jesus said in his followers, it's a great promise, John 15. If he has chosen you, you will bear fruit. Because he says, I choose you, I chose you and I appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. This is not fruit that will burn up in the fires. It is true fruit. It is saving fruit. And Jesus told us clearly what we must do to bear this fruit. Famous passage in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, 
so neither can you unless you abide in me. Be united with Christ. It's the only way to bear fruit. Remain in him, and it produces a harvest of fruit that has eternal benefit. And finally, a disciple is a witness. John gives us a a really helpful picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it comes in the Great Commission. John and, uh, and even places like John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That means that if you're a disciple, you're on a mission. In the broader sense, a disciple is a missionary. Their location is where they live. You're not only a missionary if you leave your country. We are called to step out into the world without stepping into it. Onto the mission field without becoming a casualty. And Jesus was sent for this purpose, to reveal God and to redeem sinners. And he has set his face like flint until it is accomplished. And he's doing it through us. He's sending out disciples, little Christ-like ones, to bear witness to this truth. And we are filled by his Spirit for this purpose. It's one of the reasons that the Spirit dwells in us, is to empower us to ministry. That's why we don't have to worry if we stand before rulers what we will say. The Spirit will give us words. How many of you have had an experience speaking with someone, and you're like, Afterwards, you're like, where did that come from? I, I wish I, I'm going to write that down so I can say it next time. Um, you don't need to do that. And it won't work. <laughs> the, the Spirit knows what that person needs. And if you're a, if you're a person who trusts in Christ, um, who loves him and is filled with his word, you will find these things flow out of you when you're called upon to witness to people. It means to point people to Jesus, to tell this old, old story of Christ's love, his atoning death, his death-crushing resurrection, his ascension to heavenly places, and his intercession for believers until Christ's return. We are worshiper-servant missionaries sent out in his name. And that's the encouragement that comes to us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he says, um, you are to, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's by um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Make disciples. Make ones who are obedient from the heart. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we can go in power and confidence because he is with us. Let's conclude. As creatures of God made in his image, we are deep beings. We are not just bodies powered along by chemical responses, the product of some myth of millions of years of evolution or or whatever. We We were first made when we were created in Christ's image. And anything to the contrary is a plain denial of God's uh, word to us. Uh, we are not robbed of uh, any, any glory uh, that would come from appearing out of sludge. We were made in the image of God. And so 
We have deep desires and passions. There, uh, we have longings. We have wants. We have hearts that feel. We have minds that think and inform our affections. We're not just a collection of stardust randomly bumping around the face of the earth. That's why when Jesus says, follow me, something resonates with the human heart. His words are weighty. He's saying, that treasure you're looking for, it's me. And there we are, before Christ, wallowing in the mud of sin and evil and self-righteousness. Imagine the most pitiful scene of some ugly, broken, dirty creature, contorted, wallowing in a, in a, in a pit of mud. That was our condition. And we heard the words come to us saying, follow me. And those words were not just a command, they had life in them. And this creature was remade, reborn. And this creature no longer played around in the broken systems that are spoken about in Jeremiah 2. But now in their heart was the exceeding joy that is spoken of in Psalm 43, verse 4. We no longer have our face in the dirt and in the mud. We have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we must remember humbly that we do not come as objective creatures. We come as rebellious creatures to Christ. And we are made into submission to him from the heart. So let us walk humbly with our God, submitting to his word, trusting by the power of his spirit that we will be made into the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Let's close, our head, uh, close, our, close with prayer and let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have graciously resolved to make disciples in every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And that because of your love and your grace, we have been folded into your household. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but have been adopted into the household of God. Pray that you'd help each one of us grow in the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, cause us to walk in freedom from sin and walk in joy that is available to us by your Son. May we all be known as followers of Christ, walking in this love and this joy and this peace and this hope. We ask these things in the all-powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.